All right. So, you know, when we talk about U.S.-China relations, it's always, you know, I have to say it's still always bottles down to a black and white narrative. There are so many ways we need to disrupt these binaries and to complicate it by talking about the nuances between mixed cultures and everything in between. So today I'm so delighted to have um, an author, an activist, scholar, business, you know, genius um, here to talk about his perspective on this U.S.-China relations in reference to being multicultural. And when I say multicultural, specifically um, Jamaican and Chinese. And I want to dig into his background and how that informs his way of seeing things and how things weave together. So uh, without further ado, thank you and welcome Earl Carr. Thank you so much, Crystal. It's truly an honor to be here. And thank you so much for the opportunity. I, I found your documentary blurring uh, the, the cultural lines fascinating and just really, really um, honored to be able to have this opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you. So let's give a little context to people who are listening is that I had met you in New York when I was there for the screening of my documentary and um, you know how connections go. It just so happens that we're com connected in, in more ways than we realize through family, through the story of, of being biracial and just um, you being in New York and me being there at the same time. And they just, I, I just love, you know, these kind of serendipities that, that bring things together. Um, so Absolutely. let's talk about you. First of all, you know, being half Jamaican and half Chinese, let's talk a little bit about your background first and how that's informed you as a person. Do you sh mind sharing? Well, Crystal, thank you so much for the question. So in terms of my background, so my father is uh, black from Jamaica and he served as Jamaica's ambassador to China, Japan, and most of the Far East. My mother is Panamanian Chinese. And what that means is that my grandparents are from originally from China. They came from Zhongshan in Guangdong. Um, but my mother was born and raised in Panama. Uh, and I was also uh, born in Panama, conceived on a stormy night in Jamaica, I was told. Is Maybe that, that right? <laughs> you want to add that little dramatic uh, kind of backdrop, huh? <laughs> Um, but that's that's kind of my cultural um, background. And I grew up in New York City. Wait, back um, up. Sorry, so I need to back up, back up, because what is it? How did your mother end up in Panama? Like, what's the flow? What's the immigration flow, historical flow? Sure, it's a great question. So um, my grandparents left China, southern China, um, during the, the, the mid 1800s because of destitute poverty. And, and you'll see that this is a similar uh, story with a number, uh, you know, similar narrative for a lot of overseas Chinese that left mainland China to look for better economic opportunities. And so you saw a historic um, trend from, from, particularly from Southern China, immigration to um, Panama, which has uh, historically been a central center point for then immigration to other regions and countries like Jamaica, the Caribbean, Cuba, et cetera. So I traced the, one of the first boats that came from China to the Panama Canal to work. These were migrant workers that worked in the Panama Canal. And then from there immigrated to other parts of, of the Caribbean. Wow, and so your mom met your father in Panama. So my grandparents left, so my grandfather uh, came from Zhongshan, met his, um, also like, I think there was a group of individuals that came. So he, he married his, you know, kind of high school, college sweetheart um, kind of settled down in, in Panama. My mother and my father met at South Dakota Wesleyan University. They both had scholarships to study in the United States. And there was a, a really interesting story. So my grandparents wanted to marry my mother off 
to one of her um, relatives, a, a rich uncle. Of course. My mother wanted to get an education in the United States, borrowed money from her uncle to buy a one-way ticket to the United States where she had gotten accepted. And um, she then went, pursued her, her, uh, her degree in the United States and met my father at, um, at, at wow. South Dakota University. So as a Chinese woman back then, she defied the structure that was given and expected upon her and to, to pursue her education or her freedom. Absolutely. And it was very different from her sisters. Her, um, she has another sister who did marry, um, you know, someone who her parents wanted to. And, and if you look at how the trajectory of their lives is fundamentally very different. Uh, you know, my mother was able to do uh, get an advanced degree and in, in, in get her master's at Southern Illinois University. She worked at the United Nations. And, you know, her ability to see the world and her um, various, you know, advancements, both in education as well as work opportunities are very vastly different from her, from her other sisters. Of course, of course. That's interesting. So, and then give me, paint a little picture of your father's side and what that context was when he got to meet your mom. Sure. So my Father, uh, my grandmother on my father's side, um, she was a seamstress. Um, my grandfather was a police officer. And so my father, um, you know, did not come from, uh, you know, a, a family of wealth by any means. Um, he worked extremely hard. One of the stories that he also, he always shared with me is that he read a book in the library about uh, Lao Tzu. And it was so fascinating, Asian culture, that he read the book from cover to cover in one night. So he started at like nine o'clock at night and finished at like five in the morning and was just so fascinated with Asian culture. And that really informed him when he um, did a doctorate in the United States because he, he did his doctorate on the Khmer Rouge. Um, and you know, at the time um, there weren't many at all um, members from the Caribbean, uh, let alone Jamaica doing a doctorate on you know, an Asian country like Cambodia. Uh, and so that allowed him to really become an expert uh, on the Khmer Rouge. My, my mother and my father lived in Cambodia for three years uh, where my father was writing his dissertation. My mother typed up his, his PhD dissertation, which was really special. Um, but there is one, one story that, that I wanted to tell that's really important about their relationship. So when my parents were dating in college, my father would, would write letters to my mother and then finally you know, was able to come up with the means to buy a, a plane ticket to go to Panama. He goes to Panama, finds the, the house of where my grandparents are, and he knocks on the door. When my grandmother and grandfather saw a black man at the door, they literally did not open the door. And my father stood out there for an hour and then went back home. And that story has always stayed with me and my family. And I remember when I heard that story and I shared with my sisters, my sisters felt, look, if my grandparents can't accept our father, then they probably can't accept us. And so my sisters took a very, very different view on how, you know, that experience defined their relationship. Um, but I took a very different approach um, in that I had always wanted to meet my grandparents. And so at the age to 21, I was able to go with my mom and travel to Panama and meet my grandparents for the first time. It was so, it was so very special. Wow. Okay. So you just um, 
cracked open this nut of addressing anti-Black racism within Asian cultures and the kind of the complicated, um, you know, and the complexities of mixed race families and how you kind of navigate that and what you um, attach yourself to and have to, the effort you need to make to kind of get over these kind of social hurdles to uh, inform yourself of things that were hidden from you or maybe deprived. You know, I don't know if you remember in my documentary where I exposed, like when I discovered I had a, a Blasian cousin and her story was that when she was growing up and visiting her, her parents in Santa Barbara when in a predominantly white neighborhood, her mom and dad wouldn't allow her to play in the front yard because she was seen as black and that they had white neighbors and she was concerned about that. So that reminds me of your story um, of your, your grandfather standing outside not being able to enter the space. So let's address that a little bit. I mean, how does that, how does that make you feel? And, and did you make more effort because of that story to, to kind of really break down the, the, why there are these Afro-Asian tensions and how they speak to today? No, it's a great question, and I'm so glad we're having this discussion because th there's so much to unpack there. I think uh, is very much in line with your documentary. There's there's so many different hurdles to to get across when there's an interracial marriage, um, and not let alone how the kids um, go about defining who they are. Right. You know? and I'm sure your your daughter can testify to that. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the um, interesting stories I'll, I'll share when I was a, um, when I was going to school in an elementary school, you know, kids would often make fun of my hair and call me things. So, you know, I, I tell people, you know, you know, I'm half black, I'm half Chinese. And they would, you know, kids can, you know, be, be cruel at times. Oh, yeah, I was called sure. things like Rasta chink and hey, mom, want some pork fried rice? And, and I'll never forget going to my, you know, having a conversation my, my dad, my dad left when I was young uh, and my mom raised both me and my, my, my younger sister as a single mom. But I remember asking to speak to my dad on the phone. And I remember talking to my dad and my, and saying, dad, you know, kids, kids are making fun of me at school. Um, and my dad, you know, he was kind of quiet. And then he said something that I'll never forget. He said, son, I want you to always remember that you have the best of both worlds. And that really helped me um, as a child, particularly in elementary school, because you know these, I, you know, I, I was still trying to define who I was and who I am at the time culturally. Um, and there's, you know, one other experience in the third grade where, you know, because I, my father had left when I was young, and and for a period of time, my 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 parents were separate, and so I would go and and, and spend time with with my father. Um, but I was doing really bad in school and my third grade teacher essentially called and, sh and shamed my father and said, your son needs you. Oh, wow. And so my father arranged for me to, to live with him. And it was the first day of, of, um, of school. And I'll never forget. Um, my dad came to pick me up early and I, I was the only Asian looking kid in the class. My, my teacher is Caucasian and my father comes up to the door and my teacher is you know, about four foot, nine inches. Leaves, Wait, what city are we talking class. about? What what area? So this, so this is in Washington, D.C. Okay, so it was a most um, predominantly was, white school? Or I mean, was it quite diverse? It, it was a diverse community, but the class was not very diverse. It okay. was like, you know, there was an African, one African student, African-American student. I was one of, that was the only Asian student. Huh. Um, but 
as my as the teacher approaches the the my father, she says, "Sir, can I help you?" And my father says, "Ma'am, I'm, I'm here to pick up my son." Now the teacher looks back at the class, then she looks back at my father, and says, "Sir, I, I think you have the wrong class." Oh my god! And, you know, I'm I'm looking at this crystal. You know, I, I'm because I'm 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 right behind my teacher. I'm looking at my dad. My dad's looking at me. Don't exactly know what's gonna happen. My father leans in, looks my teacher in the face and says, ma'am, I know who my son is. Yeah. And that, because I'll never, you know, I'll never, ever forget that experience for the rest of my life wow. because I discovered this thing called race. Yeah. I discovered the thing. I, I, I realized for the first time that my teacher could not differentiate who I was based on how my father looked. And you know, up until then, you know, uh, we're kids on the playground, like we don't differentiate between race. Yeah. Like we're just, we're just right. kids. And we play, I right. never even thought of my dad as black, right? I right. mean, his dad is dad. I never knew exactly. my mom was Asian or Chinese. It's just, that's just mom. Right. But for the first time in the third grade, that, that, that quintessential experience framed for the first time, my understanding of race. That is such a powerful story. And thank you for sharing that. For people who are just tuning in, I'm talking to Earl Carr here about being mixed race and having that inform, you know, how we look at what structure we've really kind of built our lives on and how the things around us are really shaped by this. So um, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we want to continue with these really important and intriguing personal stories of yours and how that kind of really moving forward into your life as an adult and as a father and how it's informed um, how you, you are a parent of mixed race kids, including yourself. So let's not go away. I'm back here with Earl Carr, who is, as you, if you've been tuning in, you're listening to his precious stories growing up mixed race uh, in DC and having um, parents and grandparents in Panama. I mean, it's just really, you know, we here in the United States, I, it, it, I, I find how limited and how narrow we look at things. Even when we talk about race and racism and race relations, it's always kind of reduced to a very oversimplified way of looking at it. And we don't think we look at the kind of the layers involved with backdrops of historical um, happenings and flows that inform where you ended up today, right? So um, Earl, you kind of shared some brilliant stories about your childhood. Um, quite, I don't know if it was damaging at all, or it was, you know, because you said it was so important, and you'll never forget it. But as you as a dad now, you know, uh, can you talk a little bit about, um, first of all, if you don't mind sharing your, your personal family, um, racial <laughs> makeup, just to inform how this applies to your conversations with your kids? No, it's a great question. And, you know, I'll never forget, um, you know, get, proposing to my, my girlfriend in college, uh, Joanna, and how even that trajectory, you know, of race, um, you know, played into, because I, I think I, I think of that as an important, you know, kind of foundation. So um, I met uh, Joanna in college. Uh, so my, my wife is, um, her, her parents are from Taiwan. She grew up in Taiwan, but her grandparents from her father's side are from Shanghai. And what was really interesting was when we first met, um, you know, I, um, you know, we were both in a gospel choir. In, oh, in, in, it's called Ebony Expressions Gospel Choir at the College of William Mary. We were one of the few Asians in, in a gospel choir. Wow. Um, so that's just tell you that there, you know, from the beginning that there was a level of, 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 of being comfortable around other people of color. Um, right. And I think that was really important 
um, for me in, in, in dating Joanna and getting to the point where I, I believe that, you know, we both share the same values to be able to, to propose and, and, and get married. Right. So I think that's, that's critically important. But what was interesting was when um, I did propose and, and um, you know, her grandfather um, did not want to attend our wedding. Oh, wow. and, and, and we, we suspect that it had something to do with the fact that, you know, my father was black. But I'll never forget, you know, before we went to Asia, I had gotten a job with McKinsey, but we stopped off in um, California, in Arcadia to meet with him before going to, to, to Asia. And I remember, I'll never forget sitting down with him. And, you know, we spoke Mandarin and, but I showed him a picture of my dad. Um, and I showed it a picture to him because I wanted to hit Tim to be very clear on, on who I was mm -hmm. and who are the various cultures that reflect who I was. And, um, and that was important. And, 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 you know, we, and I said to him that, um, you know, I will always love and cherish, um, his granddaughter. And, you know, I think, you know, for me, that was important to want to, to be able to have that conversation with him, even though he didn't attend, um, our wedding and to well, always he still ended up not attending. No, he did not attend. We, we had the wedding and then we flew to California before going, to, going back to Asia. Okay. But I did, we did want to honor him and, yeah. and, and meet with him. Um, and so, um, so we did have that before. And, and, I, and I always wanted to impart to him that, you know, to him, you know, I, I'm, he's family. And I will always love and respect him, uh, irrespective of, you know, what he thought about me or my family. But how do you feel about that? The older generation, I mean, it's one way to say justified uh, that it was that time, it, you know, it was that sense of that era where the narratives were kind of, you know, had such deep beliefs in these kind of segregated spaces and that the purity of something was so important. How do you feel about that? And how much do you think that's really changed? Because you explore a lot of US-China relations and a lot of the, the kind of the, you know, conversations going on kind of still root back to this idea of, of, of racial purity. Right, right. And it's, it's a great question. And I also am highly cognizant of, you know, my, Joanna's grandfather, you know, he comes from a different era, right. you know, and a lot of this, you know, institutional racism, a lot of these notions of people who are black uh, and, and um, uh, of other people of color are rooted in a lot of different stereotypes that are not accurate. But I felt the only way that I can help to dismiss those stereotypes is for me to be able to interact with him and for him to see, you know, who, who, who I am, right? I can't change you know, the, the different notions of, of what he thinks of Black people. But what I can do is to bring my best self of who I am mm -hmm. and to demonstrate that I am Black and I'm very extraordinarily proud of being Black. And Black comes in different sizes, colors, and shapes. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think it's important that he understand um, that, that notion. And, and I just tr tr try to do my best to, to love and accept him. So did you, were you able to break through to him? Did he open up his perspective? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, did I make an impact on him? Um, but what I will say is that, you know, the times and the years that we spent together um, were, were absolutely great. And I never felt that he treated me, um, you know, other than not attending our, our, our wedding. <laughs> well, that's kind of um, big, but yeah, all right. Of, you know, who, who my father was. But, you know, I, I, I feel that the best way to affect change is, is to be able to, like I said, bring your best self yeah. so that people see 
um, you know, that, that there's no monolith of, of what black is or should be. Um, and so I, I think, you know, the, 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 the years that we had together were extremely meaningful. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. I mean, I, I, I hear your effort, but going back to you as a parent then, so you have two kids, is that right? Um, yes. And, and, and you, you said your wife's from Taiwan, even though you met, you know, in school. So how does that, does that complicate things or does that kind of like almost work to your favor in terms of kind of educating your kids to embrace what it means to be who they are for whatever reason it is? Yes. And I, I, me, both Joanne and I made a very, very conscious decision early on in um, our, you know, upbringing of, of our kids to important to, to demonstrate the, the pride that we have of, of, of our, our multi cultural and multiracial kind of family. You know, um, we watch a variety of different shows such as Blackish. Um, I was just going to ask you if you did that. Okay, great. My daughter loves watching um, the show. Wait, you watch it together? Like they watch shows together? (laughs) We, me, so my daughter is 11. My my son is 13. And our whole family, me, my wife, my kids, we watch it together. And my daughter loves it. And she loves the different... Um, conversations that the that that black communities have uh, with each other, and you know it's interesting because we also watch Fresh Off the Boat, and it's interesting <laughs> yeah. because I wanted to expose my kids to both because I'm right. extraordinarily proud of being both black and Chinese, and I, you know, and I and what I would tell the various stories to my kids of 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 what it's like to be biracial, uh, and I tell them the story of what it was like when I first went to China for the first time, and I land in Shanghai. And this woman is just staring at me. And, you know, she finally walks up to me and she says to me in Chinese, <laughs> And I'm looking at this woman. Okay, translate for I, our K2H listeners who don't know what you just said. Sure. So, it, the, the, this, I, you know, I, I was studying abroad in, in, in uh, Shanghai in 1998. I get off the plane in Shanghai. And this old woman looks at me. She looks at my hair and she says to me in Chinese, you know, you kind of look Chinese, but your hair got problems. And <laughs> I love the way she put you know, it. You know, I was explaining to her that, you know, my dad is black, my mom is Chinese. Uh, and it was so fascinating that year that I lived in China, you know, explaining people, you know, who, you know, who I am. I, I'll never forget going to the barbershop and this, the man asking, like, when he was cutting my hair, he was like, um, I was like, no, no, I, I don't, I don't perm my you hair. You permed your hair, right? <laughs> like, and then he's like, you know, I've never cut hair like this. <laughs> you know, know so I, had all these, <laughs> I had all these amazing, you know, really interesting stories, but with, but that are both good. And, 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 you know, I also had some really, you know, difficult conversations with people. I've, I've had other friends who were black that, that were spit at in, in China and, and, you know, really, you know, that people would say things about black people around me and not know that I, in fact, was black. And so all of the, you know, the, a, a variety of these, yeah. these experiences have really shaped my, my cultural identity. And, and, and because of that, it's so important for me to tell and share Mia to Mia and Francis about that they are both, you know, Jamaican, they're both black, they're both Chinese. It's, it's interesting the the whole um, uh, academic curriculum around biracial um, kids has also changed. Historically, you were considered, if you were biracial, you know, a half of your mother and a half right. of your father. Right. But then that, that the, the curriculum kind of changed and said, actually, no, that's not exactly accurate. You are, you should be characterized as a whole of your mother and a whole of your father. 
Right. And so it's been interesting to see how even the teaching on biracial kids and families has has have evolved over yeah. time. So how do they, um, you know, well, you, I'm sure you shared with them how you were maybe teased about your hair when you were in elementary school. Um, did they have any experiences of so-called bullying with a, a, a mixed racial background, really, today? Well, well, it's interesting. So I'll share two experiences. One, what it's like being biracial, biracial in Asia, like okay. Taiwan and Shanghai. And then right. I'll share another experience of what it's like being biracial in the United States. Okay. So I'll never forget, we were in Taiwan. And my wife was, was taking my son and my daughter out on the park. And a woman stopped her and said, Like, it's like so she asked her in, in, in Chinese, she said, Are your do you do the kids have the same father? And this is a stranger, right? So she saw my son, who is a darker, a, a darker and curly right. had curlier. It's a curiosity for the go, Chinese. It's not like a racialized question in that sense, right? Would you say? Yeah, I would agree with that. Like it, it was, it's it's more of this like very curious kind of notion. Like I, I don't believe this woman meant any ill will. She just saw that, right. you know, my son looked fundamentally looked very different from my daughter and then just posed the questions like, do yeah. they have the same father? Yeah. yeah. Like my, my <laughs> wife was like completely taken back. She was like, Yes, they have the That's same father. That's very cultural. Chinese can be very blunt, you know, when they want yeah, to very so. direct, you know. Yeah. 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 Okay, so what was the other? And then I'll share a story of what it's like being um, biracial, multicultural multi yes. here, here in New York City. And, you know, there's there's much more of an acceptance. I mean, I went to high school in Spanish Harlem, and it was it was great to be able to see so many different multiracial yes. other, other, other cultures and kids right. that look similar to me. I met another, you know, half Jamaican, half Chinese, oh. and, it, and in very urban cities, you'll see that there's a lot more interracial marriage um that right. that is occurring I, I was looking at some of the data just before I, I i was preparing for this um for this this interview and the the latest 2020 census showed that we now have one of the most multiracial societies that we've ever had since the census started and there's been a 296 percent increase in the number of people who identify as being right biracial or multiracial at the same time, um, for only those who identify as only being white, there's been a decline of 8.6% uh, of those numbers since, since 2010. And, so, yet, I mean, and yet we have this div division, this gross division in our country right now with this white supremacist kind of movement of still striving for purity and yes. you say, the diversity that we claim that this country is made up of. Yeah, and I think that's a combination of you know, this, this notion that people in the minority or, or, you know, they, they, we know that America is getting browner, but for those who are in the, you know, for, for those who are in the mainstream kind of, you know, Caucasian yeah. white yeah. society, you know, it, it's kind of threatening to them, it's threat. you know? And so I think what you do see with this kind of white supremacist kind of thinking is this notion that, oh my gosh, you know, at some point, we're going to be the minority and, yes. and that, that's going to, you, know, yeah. you know, being afraid of the unknown, 
Exactly. Exactly. Hey, you know, God, we have so much to talk about and I know we don't have that much time. Um, let's take one more quick break. When we come back, you can tell your, um, I don't know if we finished the story on the experience on the U S side, but I really like to get into how you work these kind of perspectives into, um, this, this book that you made, um, you edited from Trump to Biden and beyond reimagining U S China relations. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Earl Carl Carr, and let's uh, continue this really important conversation on how, um, race relations is informed by our multicultural context and everything that kind of comes in between. So don't go away. Welcome back. I'm talking to Earl here about, oh my goodness, all these things. If you're listening, we're talking intergenerational perspective on race relations. We're talking about the influence of these you know, multicultural context to the United States and how we, uh, and I love it that you kind of give specific examples of your experience, both in China and uh, US soil. And this is what we're talking about here. You know, how does this apply to US-China relations? In your book, um, you know, your subtitle is Reimagining US-China Relations. I wanna use that word reimagining because I think you offer this idea of rethinking. Like how do we need to rethink relationships um, based on what, what's going on right now? You know, the, the, the increasing tension since Trump's gotten in, and I don't wanna get too much into politics, but if you can apply what you had just set up in the last half hour about this racial context of being multicultural and having like these biases because of color, um, um, how does that apply to how we look at US-China relations, if you will? No, it's a great, it's a great question. And, and thank you so much for it. Um, so I had the, the privilege of, of um, writing this book, came out last year in uh, September of 2021. And one of the first people um, outside of my mama, mama, mama was number one who bought, who bought the book first. Okay. But um, the second, the second person who bought the book was a woman, was my neighbor. And her name is Jan. Now Jan grew up in Nebraska. And um, Jan has never been to China, um, but I would see her often and, and we would talk about a variety of things. And I would always tell her about, you know, U.S.-China relations and what's going on. And she attended a number of the book, book talks, but I'll never forget what she said. She said, Earl, I hear so much about China. I don't know what to believe when I, when I turn on the media and listen to various. And she said, Earl, by, by reading your book, it has helped me to get a better, more nuanced understanding of US-China relations. And I think that's the basic premise. I think, you know, when you look at where we are in US-China relations, um, we're both, I think, you know, th there's, there's clearly a stronger sense of nationalism in the United States, a uh, stronger sense of nationalism in China. And I think that combination has fueled to a certain degree, um, you know, some, some issues of uh, the anti-Asian hate movement um, and so I wrote this book in many ways so that we can have a more informed um, uh, discussion about China. And I also wrote the book also to encourage Americans at all spectrums to be able to study abroad in, in countries like China. Oh, because totally when you agree. come out of your comfort zone, as you know, Crystal, what it was like for you to, to be able to actually be a minority in a different country yeah. and to uh, be in a country where you you don't really know where the what the culture is like and and to develop these 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 notions of cultural competence yeah. they it really helps you in so many different ways um i had the opportunity to take two high school students from spanish harlem from the dominican republic to taiwan for 3 weeks 
And I'll never forget that experience. And even to this day, we still keep in touch. They tell me about how that experience has redefined how they are able to interact with people from Asia. Yeah. You know, I, I also wanted to kind of point out that these you talk about the nuanced spaces um, between U.S. and China, but even within a specific culture. Right. Let's just say within Chinese culture, I remember when I, you know, I'm, I guess I'm considered Asian American, even though I prefer to be known as transnational, um, is when I first moved to Hong Kong, um, I was seen as an insider outsider because I'm westernized. Right. I was, you know, ABC, mm. this fresh off the boat right. story. Right. Um, and to a local <laughs> film industry, they're very local and they will always see me as the outsider. Um, but I'm Chinese. Mm. And so there's this complicated thing within your own culture and how you fit in or how you try to kind of prove yourself that you are still part of the culture, even if your your, your language skills aren't um, as good as to, as yours. And, and speaking of which, I, I wanted to ask you about that because your immersion, your language immersion and your cultural immersion in China and how that informed or shifted your perspective on this kind of like the, the multinational perspective. Like, can you talk a little mm. bit about that? How you're encouraging students to go abroad? I highly, highly uh, agree. But what are your experiences? How did that inform you? And how do we want, how do you want our students and listeners to feel about that? No, thank you. And, and this, this question is so dear to my heart, because I feel that in so many different ways, when I studied abroad, um, I didn't, I didn't, I knew nothing about Chinese culture hmm. growing up in the United States. Um, I didn't even have any Chinese, I didn't have any Asian friends growing up. My best friend growing up, uh, when I was in, in the third, uh, fourth grade was, um, you know, a, 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 a Caucasian great guy, David Keller from, from Southern Virginia. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I struggled a lot uh, with my own identity. It, it wasn't cool to be Asian, um, you know, in the, in the 1980s, 1990s. I, I, for many, for a period of time, I, I wanted to be white. Mm. Um, it, it was cool to be black with, with, with African-American culture and hip hop and music. Yeah. Uh, I got robbed twice in my own high school, um, oh. going to high school in Spanish Harlem. And I literally feared walking to school every day. Wow. Um, and so these notions of, of race um, have stayed with me, um, you know, and in, in, in trying to straddle both cultures. It, it was interesting because in college, when I studied abroad, I had an opportunity to identify with my Chinese heritage and culture in a way that I've never, ever been able to. And, you know, my mother is ethnically Chinese, but growing up in Panama, culturally, you know, she, yeah. she, culturally she is more Panamanian than yeah. she is Chinese. And so being able to go to China and experience the rich culture and history. Yeah. And I think, you know, it wasn't until, you know, I got married with, with my wife, my mother-in-law, we were at the dinner table and she said to me, you know, Earl, China has, has a history of over 5,000 years and we have a very rich history. And it was the first time in my life, Crystal, that anyone has ever talked to me about this rich sense of, of, of cultural history of China because growing up, I never had that. My, mo yeah. my mother never said these things to me. I, we never celebrated things like Chinese New Year. Oh, really? Or, or wow. The, or, or, or anything like that, because, you know, my mother's more Panamanian than she is. Right. And forget and the history Chinese. books, right? You learn, you learn crap all from history books in the U.S. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we don't say. learn a lot about Chinese history in, 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 in the history in the United States. And so living in Asia, living in both Shanghai first and then traveling to Taiwan and living in ta Taiwan for a year really helped me to gain an appreciation 
of 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 Chinese culture in a way that is so meaningful, and it's so it's so difficult for you know you know Crystal, our kids learning yes. Mandarin here. Like I I really feel for you know biracial kids learning Mandarin here in the United States because it's so hard to learn the language without the cultural context. So you is know? that and do I, you think? Is if that you're gonna have to give like one advice outside? Do you think it's imperative to go abroad in order to get a hold of the language and culture? Absolutely. You know, I talk with so many of my friends who they talk about what it was like going to um, you know Mandarin school on the weekends and how difficult it was. And I really, you know, you know, it's so important that if there's one key takeaway for for parents, and we're very fortunate because we bring our kids to to Taiwan during the summers, um, that you have to be able to have the cultural and language component around the language. Because for a period of time, when I when I first started starting learning Chinese, I mean, I did it because I wanted to learn a foreign language, but I just felt I was just memorizing um, words and then forgetting them. So, but going to China really helps you connect the dots. Going to Asia connects the dots culturally. And so I highly Or any other culture that somebody wants to kind or of connect any other to, culture. Right? Absolutely. Yes. Right. Um, what about the question of like privilege space or access to this stuff? I mean, like, is there a way around it? You know, is it is it only limited to people who have access to traveling and connections to different countries? What are your thoughts on that? Because, you know, I think a part of being rethinking cross-cultural relations, even referencing your U.S.-China um, focus, is that how does race tie into um, access to wealth, access to opportunities, access to places that you don't think is part of your world? How do we want to end with that mm. thought? No, it's a great it's a, it's a great question, and I think what's 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 been fascinating over the last I would say ten years is that both there have been so many organizations. Uh, the Freeman found uh, the Freeman uh, Asia Foundation is one great example that are providing opportunities for students to take advantage of scholarships to be able to study abroad. There are other, the, there's the, um, the Boren scholarship as well. Another, another scholarship that, that will pay, um, you know, full, uh, a full ride to be able to study abroad and, and, and do, do research. Um, and I think these opportunities are, are great. Um, at the same time, you, you have to be able to be uh, thoughtful about finding these opportunities, yes. right? You have to be nimble. You have to be proactive about finding yes. them. But, I'm part of uh, an organization called the Black China Caucus. And this is an organization that is helping uh, provide the right kind of ecosystem to help people who are African-American and who have expertise on China. And I love this, that in 2022, here we are, we're, 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 we are starting to be able to invest in these types of organizations because people see the value of being able to cultivate um, you know, Chinese, China expertise with people who are, you know, individuals of color, particularly predominantly African-American and Hispanic. That is so great. I'm so glad you brought on those um, details. Um, I wanted to leave it with you giving any kind of advice to students out there who are hungry to kind of you know, disrupt these these binary structures and to reimagine um, whether it's U.S. and China or U.S. or wherever people are connected to. What are some thoughts you want to leave these people and how to move forward to uh, embracing it? Um, you know, one of my one of my favorite quotes that I learned is from a Confucian scholar, uh, Wang Yangming, who lived in the 18th century, and his quote was, "The only true knowledge." is knowledge which is engaged and aware of its consequences in action. 
And when I think about that quote, if you, if you break it down at its bare essence, it's being able to gain knowledge, but not just gain knowledge, but apply it. And by having opportunities to study abroad, by opportunities to go, like you are taking that knowledge and then you're bringing it back and apply it. And if you look at, you know, throughout Chinese history and, and, and world history, we've seen that played out over and over again, where uh, in Japan, um, you know, there they were, they were people who, who went um, and, and went abroad to countries like the United States and, and in Asia as well. You saw China go abroad to countries like Britain, et cetera, and bring back new ideas and thinking the same way that the United States during the various enlightenment period would go to uh, other places in Europe. And I think these exchanges are so vitally important because at the end of the day, um, for us to grow as in the sense of humanity, we be a, we, it's so critically important that we invest in each other. Absolutely. What a great way to end this to how we can invest in each other. If you're listening, Earl Carl, thank you so much. Uh, editor of From Trump to Biden and Beyond, Reimagining U.S.-China Relations. Thank you for your stories. Thank you for sharing your personal context to everything you do. Wishing you all the luck and everything. Thank you. Thank you.